welcome to Broken Law, the podcast about the law, whose interests it serves, and whose it does not. Brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonpartisan nonprofit organization. I'm Lindsay Lingholtz, Director for Policy and Program at ACS. On today's episode, we're going to discuss substantive due process. If you tuned into the confirmation hearings for now Justice Designate, Kintaji Brown Jackson, you likely heard discussion about judicial philosophy and a legal concept called substantive due process. Last month, Justice Designate Jackson was confirmed by the Senate as the first Black woman Supreme Court justice. She will join the court upon Justice Stephen Breyer's retirement this summer. And while her confirmation process has now concluded, the debate over substantive due process rages on. Recently, a draft opinion in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization was leaked. Authored by Justice Samuel Alito, the draft opinion would overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey and seems to take dead aim at other rights grounded in substantive due process. Regular listeners of Broken Law will be very familiar with Dobbs. The Supreme Court case centered on the constitutionality of Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban. But if you're unfamiliar with the case, I'd highly, highly recommend going back to episode 49. To help us make sense of all of this, I'm joined today by Dean Kimberly Metrison, co-dean and professor of law at Rutgers Law School in Camden, New Jersey. She is a reproductive justice scholar whose work sits at the intersection of bioethics, health law, and family. Dean Metrison, welcome to Broken Law. Thank you so much for having me, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here. You know, just last month, the Senate confirmed Kintaji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. And during her confirmation hearings, we heard a number of conservative senators ask about substantive due process. So I'd like to just start there. What is substantive due process? So substantive due process is a unnecessarily complicated way (laughs) of talking about rights that are read into the Constitution. So instead of just thinking about due process as something that's about procedure, right, that you get a right to a trial, that you get a right to a jury, that that it has to be timely, all of that good stuff, which is all procedure, substantive due process says actually the Constitution provides space for the court, the Supreme Court in this case, to articulate rights that are not specifically enumerated in the Constitution. And I should say, to be fair, that the concept of substantive due process has been controversial over the years, but it has also been a really powerful tool for the advancement of justice in this country. That's super helpful. And when you say enumerated, can you explain kind of what the difference between an enumerated right and an unenumerated right might be? Absolutely. So one of the easiest ways to think about it is there are, uh, you know, the rights that people tend to talk about within the Constitution are the Bill of Rights, right? So there are enumerated rights there. So, you know, um, the Second Amendment, which lots of people seem to be very (laughs) invested in, which is the right to bear arms. You know, there's our right to free speech and right to exercise our religion and the First Amendment. Um, So those are the kinds of rights where you can actually look at the text and say, this word appears in the text of the Constitution. Um, Of course, there's still lots of space for interpretation, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so again, going back to the Second Amendment, um, if you think about our founding fathers, um, I don't think they could have imagined what type of weaponry is now being thought of. Um, within the context of the right to bear arms. So, you know, there's always um, room to expand there, but it is starting from the foundation of actually having the right laid out in some way um, in the Constitution. And then there are rights that lots of folks, I think, imagine must be somewhere in the Constitution because they're so obvious, and yet they aren't. So, for instance, there is no explicit um, right to privacy in our Constitution. There is no right to procreate. There is um, no right to parent and make decisions for your minor children. There's no right to marry. There's no right to access birth control. So all of those rights have been created as part of substantive due process. Got it. That's super helpful. And, you know, there, there's also the Ninth Amendment, which kind of plays into this, right? Which, which says, listen, we know that we didn't list everything out, but there's obviously still rights that are to be had. Is that yes. right? Exactly, exactly. And then it's sort of the interpretation of that, and also obviously the 10th Amendment, people take that to mean, well, if there are other rights, they can only be articulated by the states. They cannot be created um, by the Supreme Court. 
Got it. So what do you make of this focus of the hearings? You know, given what we now know about the direction that the court is headed on this area of law, what do you make of, of the kind of almost hyper focus during the confirmation hearings? It was not surprising to me for a couple of reasons. One is that one of the um, major points of folks on the right for a long time has been a concern about judicial activism. And so substantive due process has been a target because it is perceived by some folks as judges making law as opposed to judges applying the law. Of course, the whole reason why we have a concept of common law is because <laughs> judges make law. Right. That aside. Right. Um, so that's the judicial activism part. Um, and then, you know, the second part of it, of course, is that abortion has consistently been attacked as one of the most kind of, you know, egregious rights that's been articulated that is not specifically laid out um, in the Constitution, which is, a, which is a weird argument to make, right, that if it's not specifically laid out in the Constitution, not just because of the point that you made, which is that the Constitution by its own terms, recognizes that there are other rights that can and should exist for people, but also because if that's the rule that we wanted to use, there are lots of words that don't appear in the Constitution, right? The word woman never appears yeah. um, in the Constitution. I would like to think it applies to me and to you. So, you know, there, there there's definitely room for debate, and there has been a lot of debate about, you know, what it means to interpret the Constitution. And so it wasn't surprising to me that those issues came up in the context of the confirmation hearings for Justice Jackson. Well, and now we we see that while um, this, you know, confirmation process was going on over just across the street at the court, Justice Alito was working on his draft opinion of Dobbs, um, which has been leaked. And I'd love to touch on a few things. The first is a reliance on what Justice Alito described as the nation's history and traditions, mm -hmm. um, which sounds so, um, it, it could sound so dry if we didn't know what he was actually digging in there. And so for those who haven't read the opinion or even those who read it um, and maybe weren't sure to make of what to make of this argument or thought that it sounded, you know, relatively benign, it's just history. Could you explain what's actually going on in this section? Absolutely. So what's actually going on there is, as a starting point, Justice Alito is referencing a test that the Supreme Court has used in the past in order to decide whether certain rights are fundamental rights, even if they don't appear in the text of the Constitution. Right. So going back to this concept of substantive due process, that so there are rights that can be read into the Constitution. And in fact, some of those rights are so important that the Supreme Court has called them fundamental rights. And the test that the court has frequently used, or at least some people, I should say, on the court <laughs> yeah. um, have used is this idea of, is this a right that is deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions? Um, and that's supposed to be a way of us identifying, well, even if it didn't end up sort of explicitly in the Constitution, the founders understood that this was the kind of right that the Constitution should protect. Now, I am always um, skeptical of this test and long have been because, unfortunately, if we think about the history and traditions of this country, they have excluded lots and lots of folks. Right. So we had to have amendments to make sure, you know, that people of color and that women could vote. Um, we had to have amendments to deal with the entrenched racism um, in this country. So. There, there's this sort of side of the ledger that says what's most important is for us to try to reflect back on what our founders were thinking. And then there's another side of the ledger, um, which frankly I fall on, which is the Constitution um, doesn't work unless it is a living document, right? The idea of sort of stagnating around this idea of history and tradition, given what we know about the history and traditions in this country, um, certainly is problematic on, on multiple levels. And we saw this again back at the confirmation hearings. Um, there were a lot of questions on um, Judge Jackson's judicial philosophy mm -hmm. um, and, and particular questions about her thoughts on originalism. And, and originalism is kind of the other side of that ledger that you're describing. You know, that that is the legal philosophy that goes back and tries to look at the founding father's kind of thoughts and sentiments. You know, it, it 
to bring it back into this very political moment at the court, as you mentioned, the the folks who were around at our founding had very different views of just the humanity of the folks that they were talking about and who they were governing. And so I, I'm hoping that we could dig in a little bit on that. You know, they, they are looking backwards, um, but there's very little in the opinion that actually looks at the circumstances of today and, and the impact that it would have on women and other um, people who could become pregnant and, and just the way that it would play out at this very moment. Yeah. I mean, that, that was, I mean, there were lots of things that I thought as I was reading um, the leaked Dobbs opinion, but certainly one of them was that it was so steeped in the past um, and that it did that justice Alito really didn't bother to contemplate the impact of taking away a federal right to abortion um, in this country, even just the way he sort of blithely said, you know, people haven't been relying on the right um, to terminate a pregnancy. So we don't have to worry about that um, as a reason that we should keep this, we should keep this federal right in place. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that and I, I will leave it to the historians, many of whom on Twitter have already um, raised concerns about the sort of litany of statutes that uh, Justice Alito points to that made abortion illegal at various points or criminal um, at various points in our country's history. Um, but the one thing I will say about that is all of those laws that were making abortion illegal were made by men, by men, right? Because women were not allowed to participate in the political process at that time. So, and even now, because another part of uh, the opinion was Justice Alito suggesting, well, you know, the world is so different now. Women have so much power and so much political power and can really be engaged um, in the process here, which is sort of rich coming from a man who <laughs> yes. is on a court um, where we're just now getting a sixth woman on the court over its entire history. Um, you know, so the idea that we're, you know, we're done with all that sexism stuff, we're done with all that racism stuff. Um, let's just focus on all the progress that we've made is again problematic. That's yeah. the word I'm going to continue to use. <laughs> rather than others. So very fitting yeah. and very polite, honestly. You. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I, it also struck me as very rich that he pointed to um, the ability for women to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, they can participate in the process while not mentioning that he himself has authored opinions um, gutting the Voting Rights Act yes. and, and actually gutting people's ability to participate. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And that is, you know, that's another point that I've made in um, some of the interviews that I've been doing that, you know, at the same time that this court is, frankly, quite gleefully um, allowing states to roll back um, voting protections and allowing states to engage in behavior that is so clearly um, voter suppression, then to rely in Dobbs on the idea that, well, that's why people have the power of the vote is, uh, you know, sort of treats us kind of like we're not smart enough to see through that. But I think a lot of us do see through that. Well, speaking of seeing through things, <laughs> you know, in the opinion, Justice Alito makes a point of saying, you know, in the draft, we should we should. I want to make sure that I'm pointing out it's still a draft. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the draft that we've seen, he says essentially, "Don't worry. Uh, this is only about abortion. You know, we're we're keeping this to abortion, and we're really just going to keep it there." And yet, he takes great pains <laughs> to cite by name several other longstanding precedents that mm-hmm. rely on substantive due process. Yep. And so, I'm wondering what you make of that dissonance, um, and and how those two things kind of relate to each other. I will refrain from suggesting that Justice Alito is a liar. (laughs) Um, But what I will say is that, you know, this was an issue that came up in the oral argument for Dobbs as well. Um, Justice Sotomayor asked some very pointed questions of the the SG from Mississippi about, you know, if we do overrule Roe, what does that mean for these other rights? And his response was, oh, no, no, no. Those are all, you know, firmly established. You know, nothing's going to happen with those other rights. But then if you read some of the um, amicus briefs that came in, you know, some of them are very explicit that this is a way to open the door to rolling back other sorts of rights, including marriage equality, including uh, some rights to contraception, you know, so so there 
the idea that if they take this move, and as you say, it's a draft opinion. So, you know, what might happen between now and, you know, around the end of June when the final opinion comes out, um, some things might change and some things might shift. But the idea that, you know, that abortion is just so different um, because it involves uh, fetal life, just it, it, it doesn't ring true. Right. Um, and it yep. seems pretty clear, um, especially if you put this in the context of what we know about the political process that led to the Supreme Court looking like it does today. Yep. Um, and so knowing that there was this incredibly well-orchestrated plan that played out um, over time and required enormous amounts of patience, quite frankly, to get to the point where there are enough votes on the Supreme Court to overrule Roe versus Wade. It is foolishness to think that that plan ends at abortion when we think about all the other sort of, you know, quote unquote, culture war issues that we continue to be fighting through. As I hear you talk about that, it flashes me back to other confirmation hearings, you know, when several of these justices would say, no, 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 you know, Roe is precedent and, and I will follow precedent and stare decisis is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it really colors, the for me, the ability to take at face value the assertion that they're going to stop here. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and also, I mean, if you look at previous opinions, Right. And you can see particularly people like Justice Thomas, who are, you know, very clear that once we get the votes, we are ready to move forward an agenda. Um, So, you know, that that has been clear to us for a very long time. Um, And I also think that there is an enormous way in which state legislative bodies in particular are going to feel um, incredibly emboldened by a decision from the Supreme Court that overrules um, a precedent of so many years and a precedent that was rights expansive, right? I mean, when we think about when the court has overturned precedents in the past, um, it has typically been as a way to create more rights, not to roll back rights. Um, And so the direction that we are moving in here is really distinct from what we've seen from the court before. So I do not, I do not have faith that this is the end of the road. I have, um, I believe very deeply that this is the beginning um, of a series of dominoes that will fall. On on that front, I'm wondering if you have thoughts on on what you're expecting to see next. So mm-hmm. we're we're anticipating a decision in June. And and so I'm I'd be curious to know what you're keeping your eye on um, and in terms of what maybe states decide to take up or other courts, you know, what comes after this next immediate step? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the first thing that comes is a number of states that already have trigger bans in place. There are about 13 states that already have bans in place that say um, as soon as Roe versus Wade gets overruled, abortion will be illegal in our jurisdiction. So that's just without any work at all, um, 13 states. And then there are, it's estimated that there are another sort of 12 to 13 states that will move very quickly to ban abortion um, in their borders. So I would say within you know the, the next few months, we could have at least half the country where abortion is no longer legal and accessible to women and pregnant people um, in those states. So that is a huge shift in a very small period um, of time. So that's one thing. The second thing that I think we're going to see is um, a lot more bills criminalizing self-managed abortion. And I think that that is a reflection of the fact that we're, you know, we're not living in the 1960s or the very early 1970s where the options for terminating a pregnancy, at least sort of in the medical sphere, were very limited. Now we live in a world with the option of medication abortion, which can be done very safely um, and which can be managed very safely um, at home. And people can get access to those pills, um, you know, on the Internet. Right. And the, the, the accessibility is just very different. So, you know, it really used to be a sort of tenant of anti-choice activism that the goal was never to punish 
women. And I'm going to say women because that's the context in which anti-choice activism really functions. Um, I've never heard an an anti-choice activist talk about pregnant people. So I'm going to focus on women. And the idea was, you know, women are victims of the abortion industry. Women are victims of their boyfriends and husbands and others you know, who are forcing them to have abortions because the natural feeling of, of maternal feeling that women have would, would normally keep them um, from terminating a pregnancy, which is, you know, offensive on, on multiple levels. Yeah, wildly um, paternalistic, yes, among other things. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I think as we move into this new era where it's going to be harder to figure out who's getting an abortion because of the availability of medication abortion, that we are going to see this shift where it becomes much more both expected and acceptable in some circles to punish women who are believed to have attempted to terminate their own pregnancies. And that is not, um, you know, that is not something that I am just pulling out of thin air. We've already seen prosecutions like that, where states have stepped in and said, you know, we don't think you really had a miscarriage. We think that you tried to end your pregnancy and prosecuted women um, on on that basis. So I am expecting to see those things um, happening as well. I'm expecting to see um, states that try to criminalized behavior that is done in other states, which is also going to be really interesting, and the constitutional challenges that are going to be raised there, you know, about our right to interstate travel and all of that good stuff. Um, We're going to see those kinds of statutes, I believe. I believe we're going to see an expansion of the definition of what an abortion is. Um, And again, all these things that I am saying, I can point you to examples already. So what do I mean by an expansion of what it means to have an abortion? Well, there are certainly people who believe that anything that potentially keeps a fertilized egg from implanting in a uterus is an abortion. So if you believe that, you know, conception is the moment when a sperm successfully fertilizes an egg, then, you know, plan B is a problem. Um, IUDs are potentially a problem. Um, And an example, again, because I'm not, you know, I'm not making this stuff up out of thin air. If you think about the Hobby Lobby case, um, which was an ACA case about the contraceptive coverage mandate, part of what Hobby Lobby said is, well, we don't want to cover things like IUDs because we consider them to be abortions, which medicine and science do not consider them to be abortions. And so if you're going to use that definition, it's because you are willing to be um, to accept definitions that are outside of what the medical establishment would accept. So I think we're going to see some of that shift going on. Can I ask real quick, because I, I, I want to make sure we don't get too far away from it that I forget. Oh, okay. um, the, the point that you made about going to other states. Yes. Um, I think that this is one that, you know, it seems is arising because we, we've already seen Texans mm-hmm. be unable to access their their constitutional right to abortion care. Right. Um, and so the New York Times put out a report that said, you know, a lot of pregnant people were able to still receive the care they needed because they traveled. Yep. Um, they traveled to other states. And so that will obviously be harder from a practical st- um, standpoint when, you know, you've got 25 states potentially that will have outright it com- completely. You're going to have to travel much further. Um, but what about the constitutionality of these states who we've already seen some state legislators proposing bans on being able to travel across a state line. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that, and, and um, you know, my, my work in terms of the constitution is like strictly focused on family law, yeah. and reproductive rights. So I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on um, interstate travel. <laughs> no, of course, of course. But what I will say is there, as far as I know, um, it is, pretty difficult for a state to burden your right to leave the state that there's something um, about that, that I think even this Supreme court would have to find, you know, doesn't make sense within the context of the act of, of the constitution. I wonder though, if what states will do is if the idea of, you know, um, uh, trying to manage interstate travel is going to raise too many constitutional issues, 
If instead what they'll try to do, or if in addition, what they'll try to do is just punish people when they come back. Right. Mm -hmm. So I can't, I can't keep you from leaving, Mm -hmm. but if you come back and I somehow find out that you left the state in order to get an abortion, can you be punished now in your state because you had an abortion elsewhere. That raises lots of constitutional questions as well, including, I think, still questions about the right to interstate travel. Um, But and and the evidence, right? How are you going to know that that's what somebody did? Where are you going to get that information from? Um, Are we going to see states creating more of these sort of Texas style bounty hunter laws? So they'll say, you know, if you find out that your friend crossed the state line to get an abortion, you can, you know, sue and get $10,000, right? Um, So I think that one of the big things that we're going to see is just lots of creativity, which I normally think of as a good thing, but what I worry about here, um, you know, lots of creativity in terms of what these statutes are going to look like um, going forward. And then because of that, I think we're going to see lots of um, I was going to say really interesting litigation, um, which makes me feel bad, right? Because this is litigation that is really about people being able to exercise some very basic rights. Yeah. But the sort of law nerd in me is sort of fascinated by how these issues are going to be decided yeah. by courts. Um, well, we're in uncharted territory here, you know, and, yes. and so it, it's it's a lot of novel questions with real harm underneath, I think yes. is what you're, yeah. Precisely. And really, a lot of these laws, even if they end up being stricken down, they still create this culture of fear um, and intimidation. And I'm a Texan by birth. Uh, I I grew up in Texas and I, you know, have friends and family and and, um, loved ones who, you know, even when I was home for the holidays, we had to have just a very awkward (laughs) skirting around issue conversation about like, if you get into trouble, um, you know, you just need to come and see me and, and just trying to kind of create a little bit of um, a lifeline in these yeah. in these very fearful environments. And so Absolutely. I think that you're going to see for me, it seems like we're already seeing um, mm-hmm. just kind of the intimidation come out of some of these proposals, even if they don't become law. Yes, yes. And that that is such an important point. Yeah. Um, you know, we already know that Unfortunately, lots of Americans are not super um, sort of, you know, law literate. And what I mean by that is that, you know, they're not they're not reading the state statutes. Right. They're getting their information from other people. They're getting their information from what the what legislators are saying that a statute says. Um, if they're lucky, we're getting their they're getting their information from a trusted um, news source, but we know that that's not true for everyone. And so, you know, people are going to get messages that leave them believing that potentially they don't have access um, to things that, in fact, they do have access to. Or, um, you know, sometimes all it takes is threatening somebody with a consequence in order to get them to not do something, even if you couldn't follow through with that threat. So I'm thinking in this context um, in particular about what sometimes becomes, you know, a contentious relationship between, say, a healthcare provider and a person who's pregnant. Um, and the healthcare provider says, well, if you don't stop doing X, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to call Child Protective Services. And there, you don't even have to make the phone call. You just have to make the threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're going to see more of that going on as well, because people just won't know what the rules are, where they are, and what the consequences might be for them seeking abortion services, or what the consequences might be for a healthcare provider yeah. who performs an abortion in circumstances that should be covered by particular laws, right? So imagine that we've got those laws that do have exceptions for life and health um, of the pregnant woman. You know, the last thing I would ever want is a physician who is standing there over a woman who is, you know, has a a pregnancy that is, that is not viable, right? Everything has gone wrong. Um, And that physician saying, well, is she sick enough now for me to do the abortion? Do I have to wait for a little bit longer? Do I have to get multiple um, opinions from other healthcare providers? Because I want to make sure that if I get sued or if the cops come after me, I've covered all my bases. You know, that's, that's not the way that I want people to be providing healthcare to anybody, frankly. 
Yeah, well, and you know, these these decisions aren't happening in a vacuum either. Um, and so we already know that the maternal mortality rate in this country varies based on your your situation, based on your race, based on your socioeconomic status. Um, yeah. And so I'd love to dig in a little bit there on, um, you know, when we talk about the potential of, of forced pregnancy, other things are implicated, in, including the, just the health of the pregnant person, but also the health of the child. Yep. Um, and so I would, I would love to talk a little bit about the, particularly the maternal mortality rate. Let's start there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what factors are driving these rates? Um, what are you seeing when we, when we look across the country and just see the actual health risks in ter- that come with a forced pregnancy? Yeah. Um, So as a starting point, the United States should be deeply embarrassed by our maternal mortality rate. We have one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the world, right? Our maternal mortality rate rivals that of folks in developing nations. So people who don't have the kind of money and infrastructure um, that we think we have um, here in the United States. Um, So just across the board, um, maternal mortality is a problem. Um, And then once we add race into it, as you say, um, then that gap gets even wider. So just to give you um, some statistics, um, for Black women, the risk of dying either during pregnancy or soon after pregnancy is typically about two to three times that risk um, for white women. And very oddly, right, in a way that you would not expect, Once you get to college-educated Black women, the risk of college-educated Black women dying either during pregnancy or soon after pregnancy is five times what it is for college-educated white women. In fact, for college-educated Black women, the risk of death during pregnancy is similar to that of white women who have a high school education. Don't ask me to unpack that. I don't think anybody's quite figured out what that what that is yet, yeah. why the gap expands in such a tremendous way, but we know that it's true. Um, and so part of the frustration for, for me as somebody who cares very deeply about how people choose to become pregnant and about um, having safe pregnancies, all of this work around making abortion illegal and much of it emanating from states that also have these really high maternal morbidity and mortality rates, um, but also have high infant mortality rates, often have um, very weak social safety nets, um, have uh, very weak public educational systems, right? Um, So the idea that we're going to force people to stay pregnant in a country or in a state that otherwise doesn't seem to care about people actually living through um, their pregnancies or living through childbirth um, strikes me as as making a mockery of claims about how much folks care about families um, and family values and pregnant women um, and children. And then the last thing that I'll say about that, I think this is really, really important um, as I said before, in talking about medication abortion, we're just not we're not living in the same time that we lived in when women, um, you know, were dying in in really uh, sad numbers because of um, unsafe abortions. Um, so yes, we have medication abortion now, and the hope is that um, even in a world where abortion is criminalized, that there will still be lots of people who can have access to safe abortions. But that does not cover the people who end up staying pregnant and who will die, not because they have an unsafe abortion, but because in this country, pregnant women die far more frequently than they should, far more frequently than they should because of our healthcare system. And so if our position is we're going to force people to remain pregnant, what we have to be comfortable with is that those pregnancies will kill some number of women. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's, it can feel overwhelming, you yeah. know, um, it, it can really, when, when you start digging in on just the actual impact that this decision is going to have and that other, you know, if, if they continue to go after other rights that are grounded in substantive process, it can flood. <laughs> yes. um, and, and I think that people don't realize just how many lives are affected mm-hmm. and how much this is really going to potentially reshape the way that our society is structured. Mm -hmm. You know, at least for my generation, I've never really 
had a moment where there wasn't the possibility uh, of of obtaining abortion care. It, you know, there were times when I may not have been able to afford it um, or may not right. have been in a geographic place that it would have been easy to, but it's always been there. Yep. Um, and has really, I'll, I'll just speak for me personally, has, has helped me kind of shape the way that I've lived my life. Yep. And I think that, you know, it's, it has the potential to just impact millions and millions of people, but in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. Like the impact will not be felt by everybody at the same time. And so I wanted to take a second just to talk about the fact that access to care has been limited already. Yep. You know, that Roe, while important and, you know, um, has, has really helped people make decisions about their lives, has not been equally accessible to everybody. And so I'm hoping that we could talk just for a second about, um, you know, the impact that these bans are going to have on folks who already were struggling with accessing the constitutional right that they had. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, we talk about Roe all the time, but as you said in the very beginning, um, the draft opinion overrules Roe and Casey. So Casey, yeah. the 1992 case that came out of Pennsylvania, where the court significantly rolled back Roe versus Wade and really, frankly, opened up the floodgates for states starting to um, regulate abortion and abortion clinics and abortion providers very, very closely and often in ways that were clearly intended to shut down clinics. So for instance, Mississippi has a single clinic that remains open. Um, so even if, um, you know, there, there was not a reversal of Roe um, and Casey in this case, um, people in Mississippi have one place where they can go to, to terminate a pregnancy. And that has been true um, across a lot of parts of this country. It's been very hard to provide um, abortions ever since um, 1992. So, you know, what we're going to see are people who are not able to, uh, you know, pull themselves out of poverty, right? Which is sort of that line that folks like to use. If you work hard enough, um, you can get out of poverty. Well, we know that the vast majority of people who have abortions already have children at home. So having another child is not one of those things that tends to help you move out of um, being economically precarious. So we're going to see that happening. Um, we're certainly going to see racial differences in access to abortion services, as I've talked to talked about already. Um, class differences, age differences. Young women are more likely to find out that they are pregnant later and to um, decide that they're going to terminate their pregnancies um, later. So the worry would be how much further along are they going to be um, when they're able to terminate um, a pregnancy. And then, of course, even those clinics that remain open, are they going to be able to handle the volume of people oh. who are crossing state lines in order to um, be able to provide services to them. So are we going to see women who, you know, should have been able to have a first trimester abortion who end up having a second trimester abortion because the wait to get into the clinic is so long. So there are all these sorts of, and I'm, you know, I haven't said anything about rural women. So imagine how hard that's going to be if you have to drive hundreds of miles um, in order to get to a, a place where you can get an abortion. Um, so it's going to be a very uneven, uneven landscape. And the burden is, as is usual in this country, is going to fall on the people whose lives um, are most fragile. And, and not limited only to states where these full bans are going into place, right? You know, I think oftentimes we can get into these silos of like, well, I live in a blue state. I'm probably going to be fine. Um, as you mentioned, you know, the, the clinics in those states are going to be overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you are in a rural area in, you know, in Maryland, um, it, th those burdens are still going to exist for you, even yes. if you live in a state that technically hasn't taken the opportunity to ban abortion. Absolutely. And the other people who should be worried about this um, on the complete, you know, sort of other side of the spectrum in terms of how we talk about this issue are people who are infertile or people who are going to be using um, fertility treatments. Because again, if we, if we decide that it's okay for states to create their own definitions of what it means for somebody to be pregnant or create their own definitions of what it means for there to be a child, um, you know, think about what that could mean for somebody who, for instance, has frozen embryos. Mm -hmm in a particular um, jurisdiction. You know, imagine a world in which the state tells you how many embryos you can create, how many embryos you can freeze. If a state decides that 
Um, you know, if you don't want to use those embryos that you've created, that that is basically the equivalent of you taking a, you know, a, a newborn and dropping that newborn off um, at a fire station, right? The, the example that Justice Barrett used in the Dobbs um, argument, right? If we start thinking of of embryos as children or very early pregnancies as no different than, you know, talking about kindergartners, um, then what kinds of consequences will that create as well? Could a state say, well, we're going to put your embryos up for adoption, um, which is a thing. People actually do do embryo adoptions. They do them voluntarily, though. Um, you know, is that the kind of thing that we're going to see? So, you know, the idea and this you know, is 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 relevant to what we talked about before in terms of can we cabin this to just abortion? Um, and the truth of the matter is that's just not going to happen. There are so many ways in which this decision can end up being much more expansive um, down the road. Um, and folks need to be aware of that so that they recognize that there's a that there's that there's a domino effect here. It doesn't just end when Roe gets overruled. Yeah, you know, in the in the short term, um, when Roe gets overruled, the fight um, seems to be headed to the states. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm wondering, not only what are you seeing there currently as we await the decision, mm -hmm. um, but it would be helpful just to talk a little bit about who are the folks in the states that are making these decisions. Mm -hmm. So um, who gets to decide if that um, embryo adoption goes from voluntary to forced? Um, you know, who, who are the decision makers? Um, so these are moments where um, people need to really get focused on what's happening on a local and a state level. So all of these kinds of restrictions that, that I've been talking about and that you've been talking about um, are going to emanate from your state legislature. And I, you know, just to give another statistic, going back to Justice Alito's claim about the deep political power that women have, um, about 30 percent of the people in state legislatures are women. Right. So we are we are vastly underrepresented in our state legislative bodies. Um, and those are the people who are going to be making these decisions. And, um, you know, I really think that they're going to feel um, extremely emboldened by what the Supreme Court is doing here. So there will almost certainly be a flurry of activity. You know, we've already had some state legislators saying, let's call a special session um, so we can make sure that we can get stuff on the books um, as quickly as possible. Um, so that is going to be happening throughout the summer um, and into the into the early fall. So states are really where it's at. And one of the things that um, I think a lot of people either don't know or don't recognize how important it is, you know, states have their own constitutions. And some of those state constitutions are significantly broader in terms of the rights that they create than the federal constitution is. And so there will be opportunities not only to lobby your state legislator, um, but there will also, or run for office. That's a good yes. one as well. Yes. <laughs> um, but there will also be definitely people who are litigating some of these cases um, in lots of jurisdictions. And I think that the, you know, the folks who typically do this work, you know, the big um, reproductive rights organizations, they're going to they're going to be overwhelmed. Right. I mean, they're going to be so many cases in so many places. And so, you know, there might need to be more of a kind of, you know, volunteer core of, of lawyers who are willing to take on some of these cases in the states, um, sometimes under the state constitution, um, you know, sometimes with other theories, uh, but definitely making sure that these these pieces of legislation, which are going to be put together really quickly in some places, um, actually comport with the existing rules for um, for this kind of legislating. I'm going to put in a quick plug for ACS's um, work that we've been doing. Uh, that we have an initiative called Run Vote Work, which encourages folks to to take up the call to run for office, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, to work for for some of these folks. Um, but also, I want to highlight the importance of state Supreme Courts in mm -hmm. this particular process. As you mentioned, a lot of these kind of hastily written laws are going to get litigated. Um, and, you know, oftentimes, not in every state, but in many states, these are elected positions. Yeah. They um, and so people do not pay enough attention. <laughs> to That's these. right. Um, and they're about to become really important in this in this particular fight. 
That is absolutely right. If you are a person who only votes on a presidential year and only votes for president and you care about the issues that we've been talking about today, then I need you to move past that. And I need you yep. to dig <laughs> in every single election where you have an opportunity um, to vote because those in-between elections are going to be um, really important. And as you say, if you live in a state um, where the judges or justices are elected, do not ignore those races. Those people are deciding what your rights are within your state, and you should have a say in who they are. I couldn't have said it better. Um, I, I want to ask, I know we have just a few seconds left. I, I'd love to close us out on, um, you know, where are you focusing your energy right now? There's so much going on. And I would love to know, you know, kind of where you're putting your your time and energy um, and also on the flip side, is there anything at risk of getting lost in the noise of, of everything that's going on that we should be giving more attention to in the weeks and months ahead? Mm-hmm. So I'm really putting my energy into one, um, you know, raising my voice as much as possible to let people know, you know, what's on the horizon here and that it's not just about abortion, although just being about abortion would be a huge shift um, as well. You know, I'm thinking about relationships with uh, state legislators. You know, I'm in New Jersey. So and New Jersey actually passed a Reproductive Freedom Act not so long ago um, to enshrine the right to uh, abortion in our state law. It used to be protected by common law, judge-made law, <laughs> um, but um, now it's actually enshrined um, in a statute. So good to be okay. safe. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. And so really th- sort of thinking about, you know, what can I do in terms of having uh, conversations with state legislators about how much further we need to go, particularly because New Jersey is going is is going to certainly be considered a sanctuary state, you know, as other states uh, uh, make make abortion illegal. So I'm um, thinking about that. Um, you know, I'm already involved in some groups that provide uh, practical support to people seeking um, abortion services. So I am continuing to focus um, on doing that work. And I'm also, um, you know, putting my money where my mouth is, right? This is, yeah. this is not a time where we need to create a whole bunch of new organizations because of the truth of the matter is, is that there are folks who have been doing on the ground work related to abortion all over this country um, for decades. Um, and they are the people who already have infrastructure in place. So let's make sure that we um, that we support those folks. And then the other thing that I'm doing, I mean, this is, you know, this is graduation season. Um, and because I'm a law school dean, I have these sort of multiple moments where I am talking to our graduates. Um, I had one just just yesterday. Um, Congrats so, to them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yes. Um, But, you know, a lot of my law students are feeling really disaffected right now and very cynical right now about this country, about the Supreme Court, about um, our political system, about the health of our democracy. Um, And so the other piece of it is really working hard to help people stay focused and stay in the fight. Um, while also recognizing that we can't fix everything, um, that this is a long-term fight, right? That we're not going to wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden we've achieved all the things um, that we want to achieve. And that it's a fight where it's really necessary to be able to work in coalition, right? This is not just about women. It's not just about pregnant people. It's not just about, you know, the people who live in your state. There are real existential questions that we are asking ourselves right now about who we are um, as a country. And so, yes, engage in those conversations, but also give yourself space um, to deal with how difficult how incredibly difficult um, these times are, right? I mean, we've we've dealt with an insurrection in this country. Um, You know, we watched the first Black woman to be nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court get treated with enormous disdain by a number of senators. Um, There continues to be an outsized level of gun violence in this country, um, much of it rooted in white supremacy. So there's a lot of work to be done. And it's work that can be done, but we cannot do it if we are not also thinking about how to keep ourselves sane um, Mm -hmm. within this really difficult time. So, um, you know, I've been trying to give pep talks to my students. 
I've appreciated the pep talk just here. Okay. So, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and yeah. it's a really, it's, it's dramatic to say it like this. And obviously people can't see me, um, but I'm a, I'm a black woman. And, you know, one of the things that I say to folks is look, as much as we can talk about how far we still have to go as a country, when I think about how my ancestors began their lives on American soil and where I am right now as a dean of a law school, it's impossible for me to not see the possibility of change. And so that's that's what I really focus on, right? That there are people who dug in and who risked lots of things, including their lives sometimes in order for us to be where we are today. And so, you know, who am I not to dig in um, and do the same for the people who are going to come after me? Dean Mutcherson, thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for joining us today. And and thank you for the work that you do on these critically important issues. Um, You're welcome. I, I, I can't tell you, um, you know, I, I went to a march this past weekend and I watched a young woman probably in her 20s just overcome by emotion in the moment and and watch whom I'm assuming was her mom comforting her mm-hmm. and you know it had been a couple of weeks since we've kind of been dealing with the Dobbs leaked opinion and 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 it's easy to intellectualize um and kind of dig in on the legal issues but in that moment at least for me I it, the emotion kind of flooded back and and so I want to thank you just for your thoughts at the end in particular and kind of bringing home the real humanity um, and what we've been talking about. And so. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Oh, the pleasure is mine. We, we so appreciate it. Dean Kimberly Mutcherson, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners for finding Broken Law. Please be sure to follow and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you haven't had the opportunity to listen to episode 49, Reproductive Rights in Crisis, run, don't walk to wherever you are listening to this episode and download now. If you have ideas for future episodes, let us know. You can email us at podcast at acslaw.org or find us on social media at acslaw. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interests it really serves and whose it does not. Thank you.